0: I needed to slow down. And I did leave pockets of air here and there.
1: Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Ashley M. Jones. Today, I'm thrilled to speak with poet Marcus Wicker, who joins us from Memphis, Tennessee. Two of Marcus's poems are featured in the December issue of Poetry. The poems consider what an extraterrestrial landing in Atlanta in 2020 would think of America and its Hall of Horrors. Like much of Wicker's poetry, these pieces incorporate popular culture and music references, alongside his own unflinching observations and exciting wordplay. Marcus, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Ashley. Good to be here.
1: So excited to talk to you today. And I have to tell you, I brought your book to the recording with us just so it could be here. Ah,
0: Appreciate (laughs) it. Of
1: course. So this book, your 2017 book, Silencer, it's a fantastic book, by the way. Anybody out there who has not read it, please get it, read it. This book is full of poems which use playful but biting language, Black pop culture references, and all these incredible dagger endings that you have, um, which make the whole poem turn on its head. In my writing life, I think, and a lot of, in all of our writing lives, making a new lane isn't always easy especially for those of us who are marginalized and who find ourselves as one of the only or the only marginalized person at the workshop table. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you developed your style, because as I read it, it seems like you're so comfortable incorporating all these different parts of our culture onto the page. You're sort of gliding through pop culture, spirituality, Blackness, and this use of language that is so alive. How did you come to that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I always think about when I'm writing my work is the audience that sort of set me forth on the path towards poetry anyway. Um, and when I think about that audience, those are folks from my hometown of Ypsilanti, Michigan. Most people know Ann Arbor because of the University of Michigan. Ipsy is about 15 minutes away. It's a little more diverse. It's more working class. And so, you know, I went to a private school in Ann Arbor for first through eighth grade And then I went to public high schools in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And it turns out that all of the people that sort of loved on me in high school that were like in my neighborhood, those are the folks who told me, you've got something, you know, when I was in the English class. And so I always think about them as my audience. Some of these folks finished high school, some didn't, some are in places that I wouldn't encounter them at this point. But when I write my poetry, I imagine that they're reading the work, right? And that even if they haven't been through an MFA workshop, even if they don't have the same lexicon or the same sort of personal canon, I want them to hear pop culture and hip hop references that reflect them. I want them to hear the sort of seasoned speech and slang that we spoke in when I was in high school. And on the other hand, I'm also thinking about, I guess, my colleagues in academia and all the craft that I've learned over the years. I'd like to honor both. And so that's sort of, I guess, the way that my style came about.
1: I think it's so fascinating to hear you say that you want to bridge that academic side of yourself with like real humans, (laughs) you know, I mean, no offense to academic people, I am one as well, but there is a sort of different way that we use language in those two spaces. Do you ever find it to be a battle between those two sides or even what do you envision as the purpose of poetry, knowing that you have those two sides in contrast
0: yeah well i guess you know i think that people want to see themselves reflected on the page just the way that they want to see themselves reflected on tv or movie and so maybe that's the the initial thought i'm really interested in deglossia this idea of high and low diction merging i'm sort of a hyphenated person I don't like to be boxed in in general. And so these days, I think I'm just trying to get in my bag, right? I'm trying to become more and more me on the page. And if that means that I'm walking further away from academia and closer to my folk in Ipsy or vice versa, I'm okay with that. I'm just, um, I'm trying to write the poems that will change the way that people think and that will change me first and foremost, I guess, when I'm going through a vision.
1: Agreed. Same. That is truly what I'm trying to do as well. And I think as we grow in our poetry careers, how many many books we get in, like each book seems to allow us to walk through a different door. That's right. That may be closer to our truer self, which is exciting. I'm very excited about these new poems and that door that you're opening with them. So I wonder if you could read to us the poem Dear Mothership.
0: Dear Mothership. Like witch grass effacing a wheat bed, gradually, a ghoulish shadow swallowed me from the earth up. Curtain ankles, stock thighs, and belt line haunted every golden region. Unhinged behemoth jaws that inhaled me into wailing dark, where I abided numerous waning moons. For what felt like 14,000 addling revolutions of the real slim shady, blasting at festival volume. The apoplectic and gone, a fringe of seedlings, violet hebe jeebies shrouding my body in a trespass field. But today, dear mothership, today you are augury. Your name, a foretelling relief, scrolled across martyr buses and yellow script near Headland and Delow. Bannered beneath the marquee at Cascade Roller Rink, booming in Biggie's classic Juicy Verse. Oh, long-playing mothership, forgive me my crackling radio static, I have seen things. Forgive me these months of turmoil, of glissandoed catastrophe. The disquiet here is Unprecedented. Like a crane fretboard, I have carried discord as snap-harp strings. I have streamed and ingested the yokel mistreatment of a half-black duchess by a bloodstruck monarchy. I have gleaned protest and riot mean different things. Have seen tribalism starve decency by a Twitter feed diet. Mercy me and my lapse correspondence i came here seeking meaning hairline cracks in the soul's moss skin but vibed no such emerald enlightenment oh high matriarch maker of melody luthier me a tuning fork heart eq every shih tzu cable news car alarm knell, strum me in your key of care and volition Peace tree me, tint the windows with roses, sparkle every cog wheel fresh and so clean. Mayday, mothership, save me. A million leaking eyelets obscure my visage with grief.
1: So I love that poem, Dear Mothership, and I think maybe it's a part of a larger project. Could you talk more about that project and what you imagine it will
0: be? Yeah, so the the project came out of the pandemic. I think that my reaction to it was a little delayed. The fall semester where I teach at University of Memphis had been over for a month. And when the university said, hey, we're gonna go on Zoom until we can figure out how to make classes happen safely, I sort of insulated myself from some of the fear and panic that I should have been experiencing by keeping my mind trained on poetry. But that avoidance only worked for so long. So once the writing slowed and I didn't have as many ideas, the anxiety about the new normal creeped up. Suddenly I was stuck in the house, paralyzed by grief, all the social turmoil on TV and Twitter, just like everybody else. And so I spent a lot of hours looking for sources of calm in familiar books and also in music. So really anything space influence like Outcast or Thundercat or Parliament Funkadelic. And some of those nights, I'd read a few poems from the collected Robert Hayden before bed, wanting for something clear-headed, something beautiful and precise. And a lot of those nights would end with me rereading his poem, American Journal, about an alien arriving in America. And examining the human condition. And the poem is, you know, it's three pages long, but it feels as if it could go on forever. Among them, the Americans. This baffling multi people, extremes and variegations, their noise, restlessness, their almost frightening energy. How best describe these aliens in my reports to the counselors? disguise myself in order to study them unobserved adapting their varied pigmentations white black red brown right. there are these great cesuras between each line strange phrasing and weird observations and i just wanted more of it and then i just i thought well what would that look like in 2020 like maybe if i write in persona i can sift some of my feelings about what's going on in the world through the lens of this extraterrestrial And because I'd been listening to Outkast and the AT-Alien album on repeat, I thought, okay, so maybe this extraterrestrial lands in Atlanta in 2020. And maybe some of the ways that I filter my thoughts through are through Outkast lyrics and just sort of see what happens. And so I started to write this logbook. Each sonnet in this sequence is um, a page in a logbook, observing with the AT-Alien sees over the, the course of the pandemic.
1: That is so fascinating. And I think it needs to be said um, that the idea of being an extraterrestrial in a strange land does fit so well, I think, for the African-American experience, because, I mean, literally a people who were brought to a new place that did not look like home, they weren't treated like it was home. There was all these strange noises and and. Things just everywhere. And even now as descendants of enslaved people, in many ways, sometimes I look at this country, the place where I was born, and I don't know what this is. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Even before 2020, right? there were so many moments where I'm, I just would say, what, why, <laughs> you know, why are we here? Mm-hmm. What is this culture? Why is there so much blood on everything, you know? And so I was really drawn to these poems for that reason first, without even really thinking about Outcast and AT aliens. But adding that in just like brings a whole other texture to these pieces. And I'm very excited for this project. That sort of futuristic music that we've seen for so long. You mentioned even George Clinton, who is truly, I think, still on another planet. Like, I don't think (laughs) he's born here (laughs) at all. I'm from Alabama, so I think of Sun Ra, Absolutely. literally, literally said, we have to go to another planet. Like, this is not home. So I just think it's so fascinating and just right on time. Because I do think um, during 2020, we heard a lot of people talking about, you know, moving away from mm-hmm. America. There were all these conversations about, should we go back to Africa? Is Africa home for us? And then when people, when I guess billionaires decided to go to space, some people started asking, should we leave Earth? <laughs> right. And I have a particular viewpoint on that. You know, I don't know if I can survive up there. Right. I'll let all the billionaires go up there, uh-huh. do their thing. But anyway, these poems, like I said, are just, I think, perfectly timed. And do you feel, um, I also, well, let me back up. So, A.T. Aliens from Outcast mm-hmm. is also a Southern text. Yes. So, the South, and I have to talk about the South, of course, because that's where I'm from. And you're in Tennessee mm-hmm. uh, now. Yep. So you are a Southern person. I don't know if you describe yourself as that. Let me not put that on you if you say you're Southern. No,
0: I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, it's been <laughs> like six years here. I'm getting there. And the South definitely got something to say. Yeah.
1: Yes, we do. We do. But I think that whole idea of somewhere else does take root in the South throughout history. Yeah. Obviously, when um, Black people were enslaved, that somewhere else maybe had a literal geography. Right. But throughout time, it's just, okay, somewhere else could be the sanctuary of my grandmother's kitchen or the slang that we use, the language that we have turned is somewhere else. Yes. So yeah, all of these things are at play in my head. And I hope, you know, that you're able to get this project out so we can consume it as soon as possible.
0: <laughs> I hope so. I'm ready to be done with it. Definitely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I also, you know, thinking about space, I kept thinking as I was writing these poems, like, if black folks can't be safe here, where can I be safe right and in my mind that was space space was the place in the words of, of Sun Ra right and then also thinking about all the death and the sickness that I was seeing I was thinking about the way that grief sort of alienates one from themselves right Alienates you from the self that you were before you would experience that grief The music is different here, the vibrations are different, not like Planet
1: Rave. Planet Rave's sound of guns, anger, frustration. There was no one to talk to from Planet Rave to understand. We set up a colony for black people here. See what they
0: can do on the planet all their own without any white people there. They could drink in the
1: beauty of this planet. It would affect their vibrations for the better, of course. You're so right about grief also being another planet. I mean, all of us collectively experienced many kinds of grief, as you said, during 2020. And I mean, 2020 is like not just the year 2020, I suppose. It's like we have started the era of 2020 now. Right. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, a lot of us lost a lot of people and we're trying to figure out what that means. So I'm just excited. Let me stop gushing over these poems and ask (laughs) you to read, um, if you would read, your other poem in the December issue called How I Learned to Speak English. I have a question about that, but I'd like to hear that poem.
0: Sure, yeah. How did you learn to speak English? Fresh Prince, Freddie Gibbs, John Singleton flicks, him, Outcast, Talking Heads and Big Tech, B.I.G. and Big Daddy Kane. I tried to exorcise Black pain with tragicomic irony, And some nights, the poltergeist came for me, shrouded my pillow in Picaninny shadows. Spit was wild critical. I had an odd metered sense of timing. I wanted to file off and cascade, erode after-hour thought barbs, punitive, grandiloquent, the glow-red steel brand of language. I wanted to wash over it in a stream, of arpeggios. My diction was afflicted by an awareness of human scrutiny, which, looking back, produced one or two wrong notes. I needed to slow down, and I did leave pockets of air here and there for ad-lib and care, until I learned to sing inside them.
1: So if you don't have an audiobook for your next book, I will be very angry, Marcus, please. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jenny from Houghton Mifflin, if you're listening.
1: No, just play. <laughs> you just read so beautifully. I could just oh, swim in the sounds that you create in those. You're two so moves. kind. Well, hey, I'm telling the truth. You can count on me to tell my absolute truth. And right. that is what that is. So this poem, How I Learned to Speak English fascinates me endlessly. It reminds me of the ways in which we, as descendants of enslaved Black people in America, the Americas, have had to make this language, English, work for us. How we have made new languages out of this thing called English. How we govern the way people speak. All slang leads back to us. You can apply that also to music, popular styles, almost everything, the way people walk, the way they want to look, the shade of everybody's skin now, Mm -hmm. thanks to tanning and whatnot, it all leads back. We create the language of this place. And of course, I mean language quite broadly here. So can you talk about how language and that broadly defined sense moves in your life and your work?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Always there's music playing in the background. So sometimes it's the vocabulary of hip hop, especially sort of underground hip hop or sort of conscious hip hop, where I think that, and maybe this is wrong, MCs work a little harder on their rhymes. And so successive slant rhymes, lots of multisyllabic words and illusion. They're sort of always running through the background. And then there's the vocabulary of jazz, which is the music of my father and his father and a hard earned education for me. It's not something that I came by easily, um but I'm a fanatic now and so the I guess escape that I feel in the notes of John Coltrane or Charlie Parker or even new folks like Bad Bad Not Good or the late Roy Hargrove that's a certain kind of vocabulary that I'm always leaning into and I think that both of those influences come out in my work
1: yeah I agree I'm very excited that I know all those references that you made. I feel very cool <laughs> <laughs> that I know all those all those musicians. Um but it does come out in your work. I mean the one you just read how I learned to speak English. The rhythm of it is really quite palpable even just reading it, you know, on the page, but hearing it too. And I think that one is a sonnet, correct me if I'm wrong. It is. Or sonnet-ish. It yeah. is. Yeah.
0: I think they all are, right? All the mm-hmm. So the Dear Mothership series is not only a sequence of poems, but it's a sonnet sequence. Mm. They're American sonnets, 14 lines with a volta, and the last line of one sonnet becomes the next in the sequence. And then it's also a logbook, right? This is with the AT alien Cs. And so I've got 11 of 14 of these written right now. And at some point I decided there's all this background information that I really can't work out in 14 lines. And so I need a prologue. And so I started thinking towards this prologue. It's called Frequently Asked Questions. And that's where the uh, How Did You Learn to Speak English poem came in. And all of the titles start with questions that you might ask in extraterrestrial. Surely you must have thought about destroying us at some point. What God do you serve, right? And so I'm trying to come up with unorthodox answers throughout the poems.
1: Every time you say anything about this project, Marcus, I'm just so excited. Um, So I want to talk about sonnets and form. I find it really fascinating that you're working in the sonnet form. I love sonnets. I think they're so useful for so many things, but especially for telling a necessary story. For me, that small container and that volta cannot overstate the importance of the volta. The volta always just turns the knife in the perfect way for these sorts of topics, I think. And of course, knowing you have music in your mind as you're writing these, of course, the sonnet. And I think you're also really in line with this tradition that I see at least, maybe others, hopefully everybody sees this tradition of Black poets who take these traditional forms and make them our own in the same way that we discuss language as becoming our own. There are so many we could name, um, Patricia Smith, Gwendolyn Brooks, Terrence Hayes, Wanda Coleman, um, the list goes on right. of making these received forms or forms that were I guess created by the ivory tower so to speak and making them alive with our own experiences are you typically working in form or is this a new endeavor for you and how do the forms come to be on the page are you using just the line links and the rhyme or what else is at play
0: yeah so I, I started the project just thinking about a 10 beat line and then I started to think about the, the thing about the spacey music that I got into over the pandemic is that it sort of feels like you're in a Cadillac. Like you hit a bump and sort of the music keeps riding. And I thought in order to do that, maybe I can't use a 10 beat line. And so some of them are sort of sonic approximations of that. I am conscious of the way that one can subvert form to work with the the subject matter. That's something that I'm thinking about often in the poems. The sonnet is a great form, I think, for questions and answers. And most of my poems start out with some sort of underlying question. So like in the Italian sonnet, if the octave is the question, the sestet answers it or complicates it. And in that way, thinking about politics, thinking about inequity and unrest and all the things that we are faced with at this current moment, uh, the sonnet just made a lot of sense.
1: I really hope people are writing that down. That's really fantastic. And I believe that to be true as well. I feel like the sonnet is the perfect container for opening up those questions. Yes. Okay. So I also want to talk about the reader. We've talked a lot about your approach to the work and what you're thinking about as you write. And you kind of touched a little bit on um, some of your audience. You mentioned those who you grew up with and maybe also some in the academic world. I sort of think as poets, we are called to of course document the time that we live in. Our poems can move our readers, as you said, change their thinking. What do you hope your readers receive from your work? And can you talk more about the audience you're thinking of. And of course, I have to just say, like, remember Toni Morrison, I feel like she always Mm -hmm. talked a lot about how Black people were her primary audience. And in fact, her work, all of her books centered Black characters. And I think it really speaks to a lot of us who are writing now. She is the one who gave us such an interesting way of thinking about audience and who really needs to hear these words. But I'm just curious about your thoughts there.
0: Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'll say, I guess sort of the can answer, is that I'm always thinking about the poems that I want to see sort of living and thriving in the world. Um, and so if I want to see them, it's my duty to write them and also to buy books and sort of be a part of this larger community. I'm always thinking about Black folks, period, in my work. I'm often thinking about people who are music lovers. I'm thinking about people who are disenfranchised with poetry, who have either a limited view of what it looks like. Um, yeah. And, and the ways that my work can change that point of view or can expand the definitions of what it means to to write free verse or what it means to uh, subvert a form like the sonnet or like the hustle in my work.
1: Yeah, I definitely yeah. think your work allows people in in a way that's very important to me as a poet and I think like we talked about a, a lineage of poets have done this work for us you know to let us feel like we're welcome that we can be represented and even to see like we've been saying all these references to popular music that is really something exciting to say very clearly this is art worth writing about yeah. Kendrick Lamar and uh, Outcast and there's so many references you make in Silencer 2, I'm trying to remember, but all of these things are worthy of high art, And in quotes.
0: You know, everyone always says, you know, we are standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. But I think that in academia, specifically, there's this way that we discredit anything that does not look like either a linear narrative or something that uses buzzwords and terminology that have, you know, come to be accepted and I just, the older I get and the more I write, the less I care about that. Mm. And, uh, you know, I want the poems to reflect that too.
1: Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's true. The longer we stay in this business, the business of writing and being teachers and being literary beings, I think the clearer it becomes that the academic world is not really the destination. Like it's maybe the, the means to our real end, which is connecting with Ourselves, our ancestors, and the people. I'm like getting really just fired up to like do more poems, you know, just talking to you and hearing um, your philosophy on all of this. But I want to talk now about Afrofuturism, Uh which is perhaps a buzzword in modern society, but it's like a real survival thing, I think, for Black people. And it seems that this work is very concerned with that idea. Even though the AT alien is coming to this planet, they do exist somewhere else where maybe it's different. So can you talk a little bit first about what Afrofuturism means to you or if it was on your mind as you wrote?
0: It was on my mind as I started to write, as I got, I guess, deeper into the project. Not initially, I will say, but this idea in Afrofuturism that you know part of the deal is to create counter-narratives that actually... Reflect black folks and to create new realities wherein things like inequity or things like social injustice, racism, these things, they're not as prevalent or at least they're not things that have a hold over someone's life in the same way. And so when I think about this ATLian, the idea was that, you know, he comes from the planet Stankonia, thinking about Outcast, and on his planet, it's sort of a cacophony. It's filled with music. O-U-T-K-A-S-T.
1: Live from the center of the earth. Seven light years below sea level we go. Welcome to Stankonia. The place from which all funky things come. Would you like to call?
0: Everything sort of runs off sound. And that's great that means that you can live forever right if you tap into the the sort of right energy the right vibe but at the same time it means that if you're thinking about anything else you can't live and so for him to come to America this place where he thought that he could sort of use his his musical chops as a producer actually in Atlanta and then realize that America is noisy you know between Twitter and Facebook and everything that we look at on the news, between the sometimes didactic conversations that happen among our colleagues, there is plenty of noise here. And so thinking about the idea of escape, where can I go to be free if not in my own planet in Stankonia, if not in America, where? Right. That's one of the, the driving questions. But I would say that I'm new. I'm sort of new to Afrofuturism. I didn't really grow up a comic book nerd. Don't don't tell anybody that. <laughs> I didn't have the same sort of Marvel vocabulary. But the more I read and the more art I take in, the more I'm buying into it.
1: I won't tell anybody, although you just did. Um, tell everybody, Marcus. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Cut cut that out. Cut that out. It's okay. Um,
1: I mean, I think I would suggest for readers or readers, for listeners, I would suggest for listeners um, who are also trying to dip their toe into Afrofuturism, um, because I'm not necessarily an expert on it. I mean, I think maybe inherently all of us uh, who are black have like these ideas in our mind and we don't necessarily put the name Afrofuturism to them. And it might not be space, like we said earlier, it could just be what is, what else is there. Right. I would even argue that like a Negro spiritual is a version of huh. an Afrofuturist mode yeah. because you're imagining some unknown future that's different or better than here. But if you would like to delve a little bit more into mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. this mode, there's a great anthology out from Blair Press called The Future of Black. And it's edited by Gary Jackson, who is also a poet ah, you should check out. Definitely. If you Love Gary. That. He is an encyclopedia of all comic books. Like, literally, the man knows everything yeah. about comic books. Uh, but The Future of Black is all about Afrofuturism. It has poems from all kinds of people. I am in there, but you can ignore my poems. There are other great poets in Never. there.
0: <laughs> Never that. Nah.
1: And then, of course, the old standards, um, Octavia Butler, yeah, etc.
0: You know, what... I guess one thing that I didn't say is that I guess I found a safe haven and sort of renewed agency in considering the blackness of space, like the canvas seemed like the perfect space for charting a new vision of a thriving black future, I guess processing generational trauma through Afro-diasporic experiences, but in this this new land,
1: right? Yeah. yeah.
0: I'm, I'm definitely going to get that anthology, Gary is my man. And there's never an occasion where I'm not going to read an Ashley M. Jones poem.
1: Oh gosh! (laughs) Come on now. (laughs) I do want to talk a little bit about Outcast while we're talking about Afrofuturism because I think too, um, you know, I mentioned Negro spirituals, but of course, so much hip hop, especially like weird hip hop, is (laughs) very Afrofuturistic, and you know, growing up. I'm not like the deepest outcast head in the world. Like I would not win any trivia. You know, I just know what I know and I love what I have heard and I've heard a lot. (laughs) So again, everybody out there, don't don't judge me. I I know a good amount of (laughs) outcasts. But (laughs) growing up, I never really thought about how futuristic and like just weird their stuff was maybe because I already was a weird person. So it's like, oh, I understand this. I too am this way. But their album, AT Aliens, is a basis, as you've said, for this project. Can you talk about Outcast, wherever you want to go with that, but specifically with your um, work, why did you choose? I know you said you were listening to them during the pandemic, but what about Outcast informs your work in this project and have they informed other works of yours.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that they were or are, depending on whether or not they come back, a genius duo, right? I think that they are really good at being themselves. Their rhymes are slick. They're inventive. They are a little nerdy, what speaks to me. I think that their cadences are varied and sort of hypnotic, which to me, I mean, sort of seems like it was coming from the same place as the Hayden poem, American Journal, the bass lines are really warm. You can't hear an outcast song without that head nod sort of happening automatically. Um, and the beats are just shock resistant. The, the beats and I guess the sort of electronic space influence in that album, but really all of their work, it's hard to miss. And something about that is just cathartic for me. I mean, and, and not just during this era, but growing up, it's the kind of sound, I guess, that sort of equalize me, that calms things down. But in a very practical way, I think that, yeah, I'm just, I'm inspired by their rhyme schemes and have been, you know, before this project.
1: Yeah, for sure. If anybody out there has not listened to at least one OutKast album, please hasten to something. Do it. I know for me, of course, we all love Miss Jackson. Sorry, Miss Jackson. Like, who doesn't love that song? But I used to listen to The Love Below and Speaker Box, like, on repeat. Yeah. When I was a kid, now I had the clean versions because my parents made me listen to the clean version. So I'm just now hearing the full versions (laughs) of these songs and I'm like, wow, it's even cooler than I even imagined, which kind of talks about language too in an interesting way. But I just think that's so fascinating that you're centering them. And like we said before, they are a Southern group. Mm -hmm. I think all those things you described also feel very Southern. Even the weirdness, you know, being here in the South, and I'll ask you about this in a second, but being here in the South, there is sort of a strange energy in the air um, that makes some room for that weirdness, at least in my opinion. Um, And I know you're a transplant to the South. So do you feel that your Southern surroundings impact how you write and your particular voice right now? Like, does being in the South impact that at all?
0: Yeah, I think I do feel... Well, I guess I'll say that, okay, so I never expected to end up in the South, and I had a lot of assumptions, and it turns out most of them were wrong about the South, Um, and there is a sort of joy, there's like an inherent joy about being around so many black folks. Memphis is a really black city, and I think that the kind of energy that we give each other when we're walking around, that has seeped into my work. First time that, you know, so I was out here for a year and I did a reading somewhere where I had to drive through a cotton field and I'd never seen one before. In fact, I didn't realize that it was cotton because it was so beautiful. And then I had to sort of reckon with that feeling. And so I started to think about all the ugly bits of history juxtaposed against this beauty that I didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that too has filtered into my work and it wouldn't have if I were not here.
1: Yeah, I wish you could say that louder for the people in the back, because like it it can't be overstated what happens here in the South, I think especially to Black people, but to anyone in America or even outside of America, people who aren't even from here, from the US who come to the South, there is just something different here. And you're right, I'm so glad you brought up cotton, because even though I grew up here in Alabama, I mean, I'm from Birmingham, so we don't really have cotton fields here, but you know, visiting family across the state. The first time I saw it, I was pretty young, so I was sort of used to seeing it. But as I grew up, I started having that experience that you described, seeing it and thinking, wow, this is really beautiful. And yet, you have this other feeling coming in, you know, as you encounter it. and so I do think it's it's good that you're here because I think the South can feed this work in a particular way. And being around black people too, I think is necessary for anything that's imagining a new future for black people. It's yeah. important, you know, to me, certainly, to immerse myself in blackness when I enter these sorts of poems. And of course, if we're imagining a future for us, we gotta be everywhere around it, you know, for it to happen.
0: That's right. I mean, the South also feels like at least I'll just speak for Memphis. Anytime I go into an establishment, it feels like home. Like you go to the airport and they're playing Stax Records, right? (laughs) Uh, You're not hearing that in the airport in Connecticut, right? The food sort of seeing people joke around in restaurants to go to a local bookstore and to see so many black authors sort of stocked on the shelves out there in the open, there's a way that sort of being in the South has made me more appreciative of this land that my folks helped build and of these of these spaces that I think are, I don't know, maybe not more inclusive, but I think that they look a little bit more like the way that I look right here in the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And I, I don't know which word it is. You said maybe more inclusive and maybe it is inclusive, but also just more of an honest space.
0: That's what it is. Yep.
1: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I feel when you mentioned the Connecticut airport and no shade to Connecticut out there. We love you, Connecticut. You're great. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Like there is a, a difference in the air, you know, when you walk into a particular southern space, because, again, there are other southern spaces that don't exactly feel like home. And I think we all know what I'm talking about here. But mm-hmm. when you walk into that home space, it is totally different in the Birmingham airport. It's a different feeling, you know, than. Yeah some far north or west airport the greetings the head nods the acknowledgement as you walk by somebody i value that so much when i walk past another black person or another southerner yeah and we both know we're going to acknowledge each other's existence like
0: and you know i think during the pandemic we're thinking more and more about connection and distance and there's a way that you're right you know in the south people speak, and as a matter of fact, they'll speak for you, right? If you don't acknowledge them, they will acknowledge the fact that you have not done so. And I think that being in a place like that where being cordial and sort of being outward is expected, that is really loved on my work. It's easy, I think, to be a poet who spends a lot of time in the house reading books and sort of feeding off of that introvert energy. And I got a lot of that, maybe it's the cancer in me, but I think that I have been more willing to um, to be everywhere, right, here in Memphis, because everywhere I go feels a little like home. There's a piece of it in every institution, in every store,
1: in every space. Well, thank you so much for your poems, which do that same thing for so many of us. They do feel like home. So I'm just so glad I got to talk to you, and thank you for reading your work and for writing your work.
0: Thank you, Ashley. It was great to speak with you. If you find
1: birth, boring, just the same old same thing. Come on, time, up without a space wave incorporated. If you find earth
0: the But today, dear mothership, today you are thing, Augury. Your name a foretelling relief scrolled across martyr buses and yellow script near Headland and Delow bannered beneath the marquee at Cascade Roller Rink, booming and Biggie's classic Juicy Verse. Oh, long-playing mothership, forgive me my crackling radio static, I have seen things.
1: Big thanks to Marcus Wicker. Wicker is the author of Silencer, winner of the Society of Midland Authors Award. You can read two of Wicker's poems in the December 2022 issue of Poetry in print and online. If you're not a subscriber to Poetry Magazine, consider it a gift that keeps on giving. For a limited time, you can buy one, gift one free for just $35. That's 11 book length issues for you and a friend all for $35. Visit slash podcast holiday to subscribe. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster Deplume, Angel Bot Deweed, John McCowan, Rob Mazuric, and Irreversible Entanglements. All right, that's it. Until next time, be safe, be well, and thanks for listening.